There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. D33 counter 7, please. D33 counter 7. Walk around a supermarket in a big modern city, and it's easy to be overwhelmed by the plethora of fine foods. Salmon from Norway, mangoes from Mexico, strawberries from Turkey, and prawns from Vietnam in seemingly endless supply, thanks to consumer capitalism and just-in-time supply chains. Most of human history has been a brutal struggle against starvation, where people devoted their lives to finding enough calories just to survive. Today, most city dwellers can now enter a few taps into a delivery app and summon a hot meal in minutes. This era of abundant food is not without cost. Obesity is cutting lives short. Picking fruits and vegetables requires backbreaking labor. And meat and dairy production causes unimaginable cruelty and immense environmental damage. But a new generation aims to find solutions to these problems. Once the stuff of science fiction, technologies like lab-grown meat, vertically farmed watercress, and genetically edited fish could revolutionize what ends up on our dinner plates. I'm John Fassman, The Economist's U.S. Digital Editor. On today's episode of Babbage, The Economist's science and technology podcast, it's all about food. I meet the scientists trying to take the animals out of meat. I think that nature has given us everything we need to solve this problem. Find out how vegetables can be grown without soil or sunlight. Of course the sun is free, but we need to consider that the human population is growing. And discover the future of aquaculture on land. We work basically like a hospital. It's 24-7. I'm cooking up some of my bacon for you. Okay. I'm going to taste you on a little BLT. There are few greater joys in life than a good bacon sandwich. But there's something a bit different about this BLT. I have a little brioche, heirloom tomato from the co-op down the street, bib lettuce, and my bacon. And a healthy amount of mayonnaise. That's good. It's very good in the sandwich. It plays nicely with the lettuce and tomato. That's good. I'm tucking into what producers at Last Food call my bacon, mushroom-based meat and the culinary possibilities don't stop at bacon. Before we went down the bacon journey, we're able to run the ingredient through just an incredible range of different food applications from sushi and shellfish applications and lobster, chicken, steak, all protein pasta, which is pretty exciting. My name is Steve Lomnis. I'm the president of Atlas Food Co. And you are in Atlas Food Innovation Lab, which is a old smokehouse that we took over and repurposed into being a production facility for my bacon. Meat alternatives have the obvious advantage of being cruelty-free. Atlas calls their product bacon without the oink. There's also a huge environmental cost to rearing animals for meat. A recent study in Nature found that global greenhouse gas emissions from animal-based foods are twice those of plant-based foods. 
But are those reasons compelling enough to actually convince mediators to make the switch? We've seen no shortage of people who are uh, interested in trying the product. We intentionally place it right in the pork bacon section. So it's literally our product or pork bacon, and that's the choice that consumers are making. We constantly hold ourselves to the standard of pork bacon. Is it as delicious as pork bacon? Our primary value within the company is taste. Taste is our driver for everything that we do, and it's the gateway that allows us to have the opportunity to have an impact on the food ecosystem. If it's not good enough, if it's not good enough to be a 10% of the time, 20% of the time choice for an average pork bacon consumer, then we don't have the right to have a positive impact on the food ecosystem. Unfortunately, you'll have to take my word on how good it tastes. At Last Bacon is currently only available to buy at a few places near where they make it, in upstate New York. But the story of how it gets made is fascinating, and it starts with a fungal colony called mycelium. Mycelium is the vegetative or root-like structure of mushrooms. So if you were to go out into the forest and see a mushroom growing out of the side of a tree or along the forest floor, what you likely wouldn't see is this vast network of unicellular strands or root-like systems that make up mycelium. So the majority of the body of a fungus is mycelium, and it serves as like the superhighway for transferring information and nutrition in amongst this network of mushrooms and other fungi. I'm Gavin McIntyre. I'm the co-founder and chief commercial officer here at Ecovative Design, and we are the leading innovator for mycelium technologies and products. The versatility of mycelium allows for stunningly accurate meat. Other plant-based meat substitutes often struggle to recreate the mouthfeel of the real thing. But the malleability of mycelium means that scientists can successfully imitate the texture and shape of many meats. If you were to crack into a mushroom, you would be able to see its vasculature or the orientation of the fibers, which are what give a lot of mushrooms their meat-like texture, as an example. That's why many of them are aptly named things like chicken of the woods or the beefsteak polypore. Those mushrooms, however, are always constrained to the geometry of a mushroom. And so what we're able to do is to unlock that geometry at a commercial scale to grow slabs that are in excess of five feet wide and tens of feet in total length. So that after a simple two-week cultivation cycle, we harvest a fully assembled product that is ready to marinate and transform into a center of the plate product like bacon. So we have a series of shelves, in this instance that go 12 high, that allow us to cultivate uh, 1,000 pounds of product per shelf. And over that uh, cultivation time, what you would see is you would see a bed of our raw materials, which are the same raw materials that conventional gourmet mushrooms are grown on. So typically biomass from the forestry and agriculture industry, not food grade resources for humans. And we would start to see that mycelium flush white over that raw material and start to grow up and into the air. And that is when we have our opportunity to begin to influence and tune the structure as it grows over that 13-day period. It gets harder as you get closer. Color transition has been hard for us, going from red to black and gray. That's Ethan Brown, founder and CEO of Beyond Meat, which now sells its products in more than 80 countries and well-known fast food restaurants. If meat alternatives haven't met your expectations, meet this. A Pizza Hut pizza made with Beyond Meat's meat-free meat. The market for plant-based foods has grown markedly in recent years, and not just among vegetarians and vegans. Mr. Brown says that the vast majority of people who buy Beyond's products also buy animal protein. To recreate the taste of animal-based meat, his scientists practice bioprospecting, meaning they scour the world for plant species 
that they can use to help recreate the properties of meat. It's fun. I mean, it's like you just picture Indiana Jones, you know, with a vial. This is my favorite part of the business is that's where they're isolating these different parts of meat to understand what characteristics we need to then go find in plants. And so then it's literally just combing the world to find them. And we will find them and we keep finding them. Beyond Meat is intentionally making the process of perfectly imitating meat harder by rejecting one technology that Impossible Foods, their main rival in the plant-based burger market, embraces. And that's genetic modification. I know that I am handicapping our team on that by saying you can't gen genetically modify. And so they're looking throughout nature, that's why bioprospecting is so important, to find something that in four minutes under heat will go from red to black and gray. Why don't you use GMOs? It's, it's a couple things. One is listening to the consumer. Like very early on, I listen to the consumer all the time. And I think when you don't have venture funding to start your business, the consumer really pays your way, right? And so you're just desperate to satisfy them, right? And so I heard a lot about don't use soy, don't use GMOs. And so independent of my own personal beliefs, I sort of, you know, did that, right? And on GMOs, I'm not opposed in all cases. I think that nature has given us everything we need to solve this problem. We just have to look hard and we have to be disciplined about finding it. I think that I view GMOs as a shortcut. While plant-based meat is certainly impressive, there are particular cuts of meat that are hard to recreate. The lack of fat on mycelium steaks, for instance, gives them an excessively uniform mouthfeel, similar to bovril-soaked pressed tofu. Not bad at all, but also not steak. For many consumers, imitation meat will always pale in comparison to the real deal. What's the gold standard? The gold standard is the fish fillet. If you will, it's more theoretically like a chicken breast. It's not like a ribeye steak. That's the advantage of seafood is the physical structure of it is far less complex than you might have in some beef products, for example. Lou Cooperhouse is president and CEO of Blue Nalu. His company hopes to make seafood more sustainable, cheaper, and less cruel. But this is no imitation product. They're growing real bluefin tuna meat in a lab. There's so many interesting benefits to what the cell culturing process can do. So since we're working with the building blocks of the cells, if you will, we could perhaps make products with the same or perhaps different characteristics based on consumer desires. So the your process will let you take a story of cells and, and make it into something like sushi? Something that is sushi. It is the same thing. That's what we're able to demonstrate. It's not a blend. It's not a hybrid. It is the same product with the same name as conventional seafood products, just made differently. Blue Nalu is just one of dozens of exciting startups producing lab-grown meats, although the industry prefers the term cell-cultured. Thanks to advances in stem cell technology, beef, chicken, fish, and really any other animal you can think of can now all be produced without slaughter. Certainly we've developed a platform technology and can do a wide array of fin fish uh, at this time. Okay. And we certainly anticipate being able to extend this to crustaceans and mollusks in the future. My name is Lauren Madden. Currently I'm the VP of Research and Product Development at Blue Nalu. And the teams work on you know all aspects of development of the process from the initial isolation and establishing the cell lines all the way through to developing the delicious cell culture seafood products. Many cultured meat growers feed their lab-grown cells with fetal bovine serum, or FBS, a nutrient-rich liquid drawn from blood collected from pregnant cows at slaughter. I asked Dr. Madden how they managed to keep their lab-grown meat cruelty-free and safe. 
we have established a lot of guidelines for ourselves. So, you know, really focusing on creating animal component free medias. We've developed technology to remove FBS and other animal components. One of the questions that we get frequently is, well, if this cell is growing out of the body for long periods of time, what's changing? Is anything different? Are you adding something to the media to make it do that? That's that's not naturally occurring in the fish. But we actually look at, can you identify the cell using DNA barcoding? The second is, is the cell expressing anything that could be dangerous? We do full gene expression profiling, and in many instances also look for hormone or other things, and to ensure that the cells are not producing anything that would be unsafe or that is different from the conventional fish. Lab-grown meat has the potential not just to replace meat, but also to improve it. The technology exists to genetically engineer nutrition into meats. For example, adding fiber to burgers or making fried chicken loaded with vitamin B12 for energy. I asked Lou Cooperhouse whether they would ever consider enhancing, say, their tuna with five times as much omega-3 fatty acids as a fish pulled out of the ocean. That is possible. We recognize, you know, even in less developed nations, there could be an opportunity to make a more nutrient-dense product. It's not our interest right now, but it's something that uh, is attainable. As we think about democratizing seafood to also making it accessible in less developed nations. Regulation remains one of the barriers to introducing cell-cultured meat into a wider market. But perhaps the greatest challenge for producers of lab-grown meat is how to produce it at scale and how to make it cost-competitive with traditional meat. The world's first lab-grown beef burger costs $325,000 to produce. No cultured meat company is actually making money yet. But Lou Cooperhouse thinks replacing high-value luxury seafood, like tuna, could be the answer. First, you have an increasing global demand at the expense, arguably, of red meat. As the medical community is suggesting, we all shift our diets towards seafood and plant-based products. As economies increase, people consume more protein. We'll have an amazing amount of demand. So we all know that supply is the problem. And we all know about climate change, warming oceans, acidification, algae blooms. So here you have a supply chain that's really vulnerable. It's an unusual word in the food industry. It's a highly vulnerable supply chain. This category, this technology, creates consistency that's year-round availability. A significant reason restaurants don't sell more seafood is it's not always profitable. We can literally take off those handcuffs, if you will, and provide something that gives you security and confidence in your supply chain. Cultured meat won't immediately replace all of the animal-grown sort. But for it to live up to its environmental and ethical promises, lab-grown meat will need to replace a sizable portion of the world's meat production if it wants to become more than a curiosity item for wealthy diners. And if you'd like to listen to more about the role lab-grown meat could have in combating climate change, listen to the most recent episode of The Economist's new podcast, To a Lesser Degree. You can hear more about my tasting adventures and how food technology can help reduce emissions. Uh, so we're just pairing it with some sautéed mushrooms. We have a Blanc sauce and some capers. I'm ready for it. That's to a lesser degree. Listen on your podcast app. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Picture a modern farm. What do you see? A field of grazing sheep? Or acres of rolling crops growing as far as the eye can see? What you're probably not imagining is a former Second World War air raid shelter, 33 meters below central London. At the moment, we are growing watercress, microbacy, pea shoots, sunflowers, red cabbage, and salad rockets. Hi, my name is Serena Iacchini, and I'm a plant scientist at uh, Growing Underground. In this kind of farm, the crops need a very controlled environment for growth. What we would like to do is find a way for control better the environment in the tunnel so that we can improve the yield. Growing Underground is a vertical farm where crops are produced without soil and in stacked rows. There's also no sunlight underground, of course, so all the energy for the crops comes from LED lights. Vertical farming is a way of growing food indoors. And the way that we're doing it is called hydroponics, which is effectively growing salad, vegetables, or any other produce in a substrate that effectively only holds the plant upright. And everything else is provided by way of artificial irrigation, artificial lighting, fertilizers, etc. Hi, my name is Jacob Thomas. I'm the head of R&D and data here at Zero Carbon Farms, also known under its trading name, Growing Underground. So this is the farm. We're in a former air raid shelter designed as a tube tunnel. So it's about 400 meters long in total. There's two of them in parallel that we have access to. The feeding will basically be done via irrigation. It's what we call fertigation, effectively. Um, and then the lighting is provided by these LED lights. And these lights effectively emit a part of the light spectrum that is photosynthetically relevant, so the plant can actually do something with. And all the other parts of the spectrum, except for a small section of infrared light, is blocked out so that we don't waste effectively energy on part of the light spectrum that is not actually useful to the plant. That's why the light in here is a little bit, I guess, purple-pinkish. One of the benefits of growing plants without soil is that no microbes, insects, or other crop-devouring pests are present to ruin the crop. But to keep things critter-free, security has to be tight. So we're basically changing into rubber boots and lab coats. The reason for that is basically that as you walk through the streets, invariably your shoes will pick up fungal spores, even tiny seeds, insect larvae, bacteria, etc. And we obviously don't want that in a fruit-producing sort of environment. And the hairnet is for obvious reasons, so we don't have hair in our salad. Nobody likes to have that. These are all effectively pretty standard food safety requirements, but they also double as contamination procedures. Vertical farming is promising when it comes to leafy vegetables. Atlas Foods, who make the mushroom bacon you heard earlier in the show, also use vertical farming to grow mycelium flesh. But growing heavier crops like carrots and potatoes, as well as staples like wheat and soy, remains far more challenging. Vertical farming is also very expensive. At the moment, what we're producing is still more expensive than what come out of a greenhouse. However, we think that these costs will come down in the future. And at the same time, 
greenhouse produced products are just becoming more and more expensive. The reason for that is simply that there's more and more extreme weather events, more water scarcity, there are more heat waves, there are colder winters potentially. And all these factors put together basically mean that our costs are coming down. Traditional greenhouse growers' costs will go up and eventually will meet in the middle. And I think if the trend continues, obviously it will become cheaper. Of course, the sun is free, but we need to consider that the human population is growing. And by 2050, food security is really threatening by climate change and other kind of uh, problems that we have uh, in this historical moment. I believe that this can be part of the solution. Of course, we cannot think that this is going to be the only way for food security. But I really believe that it's going to be a great solution for a large city. Proponents of vertical farming think that the industry will grow out of these problems in time. Until then, it'll remain a curiosity, but one that offers a way to deliver more produce to more people using less water and fewer vehicle miles. And it's not just farms that are moving indoors. The ocean might be soon to follow. We are currently on a boat, one of our feed boats, touring around the farm site, looking at our broodstock cages, approaching our southern module, where we have 24 cages, uh, the majority of our biomass, where we grow our beautiful striped bass. Omar Alfie is the founding CEO of Pacifico Aquaculture. Based in the deep waters off Ensenada, Mexico, it's the only company in the world that farms true striped bass in ocean waters, and the only one to have built a commercial striped bass hatchery. We are on the protected side of the island, eight miles offshore. This provides protection from the ocean currents and uh, energy, but also provides us with uh, very clean oceanic water. Fish farming may seem an odd inclusion for a podcast about cutting-edge food technology. It's been around, after all, since the Roman era. But most fish eaten by most people today comes from a farm. Aquaculture often pollutes the ocean with antibiotics, fungicides, and fish waste. But Pacifico have developed a cunning way to keep the ocean clean. Given the ocean currents that come through the site, as well as we have a submarine canyon about 100 meters that way, the, the depth drops from 80 meters down to 200 to 250 meters, creates very strong suction and strong flow that makes this site a very good candidate to develop an aquaculture facility. The reason for that is it creates high water movement increasing the oxygen for the fish, and also dispersing anything coming out of the cages, dispersing fish excrement, and allows for a very high carrying capacity at this site. It's not just sustainability that's important here. Pacifico use innovative technology in their hatcheries that has a role in keeping the ocean water clean. All our systems are RAS systems. RAS, which basically is recirculating aquaculture systems. So we're, I think now it's global-wide, but especially this area in Baja California, it's very drought. There's not a lot of fresh water available. So we really, really need to be mindful of the water. My name is Jan Ramirez. We're at Pacifico Hatchery. What we do is we own basically exchange about 10, 15% of water, new water. The other, one, the other water just basically goes around in the loop goes through mechanical filtration, biological filtration, we sterilize the water, and it goes back to the fish. So at the end of the day, having RAS systems, you're looking as much as the fish as the actual system. RAS 
has a lot of benefits like you have full control of the ambient so you control temperature you cannot control light it's also much more intensive again since you control everything then if there's a issue you're able to control it so you need to be on top of it we work basically like a hospital it's 24 7. Recirculating aquaculture systems mean that with careful filtering fish can grow disease free the fish also cannot escape as fish from open farms sometimes do, threatening nearby native species. Other freshwater hatcheries use aquaponic systems. That's where plants and fish cooperate. In these aquaponic systems, the carbon dioxide and nutrients from fish waste can even feed plants. Pacifico has also developed technology to be able to track the fish from egg to plate. The females are six years old, males are four years old, so Females get to sexual maturity at age four. Males get to sexual maturity at, at age two. All the broodstock that we have are pit tagged in the sense of traceability. From what people are eating, we're actually able to tell them which fish produced them, what feed was given to them, what the water quality was from not only Catry, but also the farm. Less than half a percent of striped bass eggs survive in the wild. Yet Pacifico have, perhaps surprisingly on land, dramatically improved the survival rate. These systems aren't perfect. It takes an enormous amount of energy to filter water and keep it circulating at precise temperatures. Startup costs are also very high, and it will be some time before this technology is industrialized. The technologies you've heard about in today's show have the potential to radically change how and what people eat in ways that could render our grandchildren's diets unrecognizable to us. Think of a celebratory dinner from the 1920s, bone squab, consomme, and terrapin soup, eaten by men in starched collars and women in flapper hats. What will a menu from today look like in a hundred years? The answer will depend in part on which of the innovations succeed. People in the 22nd century may view us as tragically short-sighted for raising animals for the sole purpose of eating them, or knowingly letting fertilizer pour into waterways. Victorians who dined on canvasback duck did not know that they were eating the beast nearly to extinction. The lessons from history are clear. Thank you for listening to Babbage. If you're hungry for more, you can read my full technology quarterly on the future of food in the latest edition of The Economist. It includes a great spread on overlooked foods like seaweed and, yes, even insects, a favorite at The Economist. So if you've got the appetite for it, why not subscribe today? Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Today's episode was produced by William Warren, and the show was executive produced by Sandra Shmueli. I'm John Fastman, and in New York, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? 
Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.